course, I'm thankful for, for where we've been. But, but we're, we're about to, to finish the last chapter of the book, chapter 5 of the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. And, and in verse 16 of chapter 5, what we've been seeing, something happened in verse 16 of, of chapter 5. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they just start hitting us as they write. They just start hitting us with kind of these rapid-fire statements and these rapid-fire exhortations. And they, and they do that through the rest of this chapter. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to finish what is left of these last four little rapid-fire statements that we get hit with. And, and the next one that I want us to see this morning from our passages, it, it's got to do with praying for our ministers. Number one, we're to pray for our ministers. That's, that, that, that's what when Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they come to the Thessalonians and they say in verse 25 of 1 Thessalonians 5, they say, brethren, pray for us. They, we, we, we've, we've, Paul, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, of course, are the ones that wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've talked a lot about that. And, and as they write, they ask the brethren or the, or the believers in Jesus Christ at the church of Thessalonica, they ask those believers, man, would you, would you be praying for us? We, we, we've talked about a, a lot over the last couple months. We've talked about the ways that we're to function together as the body of Christ, as a church body. And God kind of gives us some more detail here as to what exactly that's supposed to look like. And we see that what God is emphasizing to us in this verse is, is that we should pray for each other. And we should specifically pray for the leaders and ministers of the church. Oftentimes when, when, we're, when we're praying on behalf of someone else, what we call that is, a, is an intercessory prayer, is what we often say. We're, we're making intercession for someone through prayer. Intercession is where you step in on somebody else's behalf. That's what, that's what intercession is. So, so an intercessory prayer is where you intercede or where you step in on someone else's behalf and you pray for them. And, and we learn a lot about this thing of intercession from the life of Jesus. We, we, we get an example from Jesus' life. That's what I want us to see, letter A, the example from Jesus' life. Jesus actually personifies what this thing of intercession actually is. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, the verse is talking about Jesus, and here's, here's what it says. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You see, we come to and have access to God through Jesus Christ because the reason that those that believe have access to God is because Jesus, God the Son, God in human flesh, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and by doing that, he made intercession for us. He made intercession for us because he stepped in on our behalf and he paid our penalty. He paid the price we, that we owed. That should have been us on the cross because we've all sinned. And because of that sin, no matter how big the sin, no matter how small the sin, that sin, it caused us to fall short of God's glory. And, and that sin, it, it demanded a penalty before God's holiness and the burden of that penalty for sin would have fallen on us. But Jesus stepped in and he interceded for us or he made intercession for us. And he stepped in and he took our place on that cross. And he paid the price for our sin. And by doing that, it provided us access to restore our relationship with God that had been lost because of sin. So Jesus' life, man, it was a literal example of making intercession on behalf of others. Jesus also sets this example for us in John 17 through prayer. Let her be the example from Jesus' prayer. In John chapter 17, in, in verse 20, Jesus is praying, and, and he's been praying an intercessory prayer for the disciples and, and those that believed on him. And then in verse 20 of this intercessory prayer, he says, 
Neither pray I for these alone, check this out, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. (laughs) Jesus prays, listen, not only for the believers and the disciples during the time he was alive, but he prayed for those of us that would believe the truths as a result of the exponential effect that the word of the disciples had. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed for you and me. Does that blow your mind or what? And and one of the things Jesus is doing is, is, is he's modeling for us how we ought to be praying for each other. And we should all be praying for one another, and we should especially be praying for our leaders and ministers according to what we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.25. You know, every leader and minister of every church on the planet has something in common. There's a lot of differences, but I can guarantee you there is something they have in common. And it's at the end of the day, though they may be people that have been put in positions of leadership by God, Some may have been gifted by God in specific ways and some people that maybe God is using in some incredible ways. At the end of the day, what they all have in common is they're flawed and sinful. And even though they may have some strengths, they also have some weaknesses. And they're all made up of the same flesh that we're all made of and are capable of royally dropping the ball and falling short. And in addition to that, for those that are are God's true ministers, they have an even bigger target on their back than most. Oh yeah, Satan and his minions, don't get it twisted. They want to take down every single believer in Jesus Christ, make no question about it. The devil, is, he's shooting those fiery darts and, or arrows, and he's walking around seeking whom he may devour. And that goes for every single believer in Jesus Christ. But when you're, the way you're used by God begins to increase, so does the size of the target on your back. And so it's important that we see what God is trying to say to us in this verse in 1 Thessalonians, which is we need to be sure that through prayer we're making intercession on behalf of our leaders and our ministers. We need to make sure we're stepping in on behalf of our leaders and ministers of the church and lifting them up before the Lord in intercessory prayer. Pray that God will give them direction as they lead the church. Pray for their families and pray for their marriages. Pray God will use them to boldly and unashamedly proclaim his word. You see, the church, we're the the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we've been left here to accomplish the same things that Jesus Christ accomplished in his physical body when he was here. And God's design is to use this spiritual body of Christ the same way he used that physical body and proclaim the gospel to the world, establish people in the faith, build them up in the faith so that they can proclaim the gospel to the world and build others up in the faith and establish them in the faith. And so that work that we call discipleship can exponentially spread and multiply and we can, ha- we can reproduce reproducers. And so because of the unbelievable importance of what's supposed to be going on in this place, we must make sure we're praying for the elders and leaders and ministers of the church. And so as we study this verse this morning, I can't help but use it as an opportunity to ask for the same. Can I ask you, will you pray for the leadership of this church? Will you you make a point to do that? Can I ask you to, to, to pray for the pastors of this church? Can I ask you to pray for me? I really, I should, I, I know a lot of you already do, and I should ask for that more than I do. But, but would you pray for me? Man, we covet your prayers, and we need your play, prayers. Please pray for us. And, and then next, in, in our passage this morning, we, we see that there's something else that the brethren ought to be doing. The brethren ought to be praying for their leaders, but something else we're to be doing is we're to approach each other in love we're to approach each other in love now i know you're all thinking what am i going to do with this verse greet all the brethren with a holy kiss is what first thessalonians 5 26 says now we got to be careful with this verse guys because otherwise you'll be smooching with everybody right (laughs) snuffy al leo 
Little Mo with the gimpy leg, cheeks, bony Bob, Cliff. I could go on forever, baby. But th but this would have been but this would have been customary back in that day culturally, right? A, a cheek to cheek type of thing. And, and as you can see from the verse, the, the type of relationship that we, the, the brethren, keeps coming up, or these brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the relationship that we ought to have with each other is a holy one. It's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a holy one. That's why it's called a holy kiss. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 14 refers to this same idea and calls it a, a kiss of charity. And, and the idea is that we're to greet each other and love on each other in holiness and in purity and in charity and love. That's how we should greet each other. That's how we should relate to each other. That's what this whole idea of a holy kiss, that, that's what this idea of a holy kiss is all about. And, and I think what will actually help us understand this whole thing a little bit better about a, about a holy kiss, what I think will help us is when we understand some other types of kisses that are described for us in the Bible. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about what's the French. Proverbs 7, 13. Not that type of kiss, all right? Proverbs 7, 13. It describes for us what, what we could describe as a sensual kiss. So I guess it's close. It, it describes a sensual kiss. In this verse, God is warning us about the strange woman that Proverbs talks so much about, and it says the strange woman, what she did was is she, found a, she found a young man that was void of understanding. In verse 13 of Proverbs 7, it says, so she caught him and she kissed him. Skip to verse 21 of Proverbs chapter 7. It says with her, this strange woman, listen, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield with the flattering of her lips. She forced him. And here's the result of going down this path with the strange woman in verse 26 of Proverbs 7. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. And what I want us to notice is, is, is that with this sensual kiss from the strange woman, her actions and her words, they say one thing, but her heart is in a completely different place. So she's, she's kissing and her lips are filled with fair, with fair speech and flattery, but what she says and does on the outside is not representative of what's going on on the inside. Because according to these verses, she's ultimately going to cast them down and slay them and lead them to death and hell. And so when God calls us to, to greet all the brethren with a, with a holy kiss and a kiss of charity, clearly that would be in stark contrast to the, to the sensual kiss that we see here. Our approach to each other and our hearts towards each other should be in holiness and purity as brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and and as spiritual brothers and sisters, we approach each other that way. And anything outside of that is obviously reserved for our spouse and, and them only. And I can't imagine that there's anyone in here that doesn't get that or grasp that idea. But the main thing I want you to see as we're looking at the way that this kiss is described is, is that this sensual kiss specifically linked to the strange woman is a kiss that's connected to everything seeming right on the outside. And the words that are being said, they're easy to listen to, and they're things you want to hear. But on the inside, their, their heart isn't right towards you. It's very closely linked to another type of kiss that's found in Proverbs that we could call the kiss of deceit. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6, it, it talks about the kiss of, of deceit, the deceitful kisses. A, a kiss of deceit is similar. It's where you're, you're buttering someone up. You're saying the right things that people want to hear, but, but it's deceitful because in your heart you don't mean anything you just said. 
It's similar to the sensual kisses we just saw because they're both deceitful. It's just that this kiss isn't sensual. It's when your heart isn't right toward your brother or sister in Christ. The externals look good. Everything looks and sounds right on the outside, but on the inside, not so much. It's like the, it's like the type of kiss that, that Judas gave Jesus. It's a kiss of betrayal. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 48 is one of the places where this story is laid out for us. Judas, he shows up on, on the scene where Jesus is praying with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he shows up with this multitude of, of chief priests and scribes and elders. And, and, and he tells them, whoever I give a kiss to, that's the guy you want. In Matthew 26 and verse 48, it says, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And then they take Jesus away, and of course they ultimately crucify him. And Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. It was a kiss of betrayal. It was a kiss of deceit. And have you ever noticed what, G- what Judas says to Jesus right before he betrays him with a kiss? Hail, Master. The name Master clearly being a name to con- connected to honor and, and ownership. And as, as Judas honors Jesus with his mouth and with the externals, and he's giving him a kiss and he's calling him Master while he's doing that, he's literally in the midst of betraying him. So though everything sounded right from his mouth on the inside, he was full of deceit. It, it, was, a, it was a kiss of betrayal. It was a kiss of deceit. And I brought you through this strange topic of other types of kisses that are found in the Bible because I believe that what God is wanting to show us by telling us to greet each other with a holy, with, with a holy kiss or a kiss of charity is that as far as our relationships with each other are concerned, God doesn't want us to simply have the externals down to know what to say. He wants things to be right on the inside. He, he wants us to have our hearts right with each other. Not just the ability to conjure up the right things to say that sound good to the ear, but, but for that to actually be what's in our hearts. That, that's what this thing of a holy kiss is all about. We should always be able to greet each other with holiness and purity and love and charity in this room. We shouldn't simply have everything right towards our brothers and sisters on the outside, but we should have things right towards our brothers and sisters on the inside. And, and I want you to make sure you know this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. In other words, our hearts should be right towards all the brethren to the point where we can greet each person in here and have nothing but holiness and charity in our hearts towards each other, not just towards our favorite people. All of our brethren and brothers and sisters in Christ because what oftentimes happens is, is somebody says, well, I don't want to feel fake and phony, and I'm not the type to give a deceitful kiss around here when my heart isn't right, so I'll just ignore them. That'll teach them. And I think sometimes we pat ourselves on the back like, well, see, I'm, not, see, I'm just not fake like that. I'm just not deceitful, and I, I'm not fake like Judas and the strange woman are. I'm not like that. I'm not going to act like we're cool if we're not. Okay, then, well, let me ask you, what's it going to take for you to be cool with them? I'm serious, because, because again, 1 Thessalonians 5.26 says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, all meaning there isn't anyone in here that you should have to ignore because you're unable to sincerely greet them with a heart of charity and holiness. Listen. Being wronged by someone and what they did to you is something they had control over. But our heart toward the one that wronged us is something we have control over. Other people wronging us isn't a justification for our hearts being wrong towards them. As brethren in Jesus Christ, we should be able to love one another in all holiness and all charity amongst all the brethren. 
And then there's a, another admonition that the brethren are given here in this passage that, that we need to be sure to understand, and it's this. Number three, we're to unify around the truth. We're to unify around the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.27 says this, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. So, so as Paul, Silas, and Timothy write, they're telling the Thessalonians that they, they need to share this letter that, that we now know as the book of 1 Thessalonians. They need to share that thing with all the other believers. And yes, of course, it's to, it's to give the other believers access to the inspired truths contained in the book of 1 Thessalonians that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise. But it was also to get everyone, listen, working off of the same sheet of music. Because God has always desired that the body of Christ be a place where there's unity. And so in order for there to be unity, everyone has to be working off of the same sheet of music. One of the reasons our worship band sounds so good is because they're all working off of the same sheet of music. A little talent doesn't hurt anything either, but that talent will only take you so far if you've got two different sheets of music in front of you, won't it? So it's because of that they sound unified. They're functioning together. If they weren't all operating off the same sheet of music, it would be a mess up here. And, and, and it would be the furthest thing from sounding like they're in unity with one another. And, and God's desire is that for all believers and as believers in Jesus Christ is that we would of course, spread that word to others and give others access to the truths of the word of God, but also that we would be operating off of the same sheet of music and with the same understanding of biblical truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it lays this idea out for us. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and, and there were divisions and contentions over differing beliefs in the church. And in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul says, I'm begging you, my brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, Every one of you needs to be working off the same sheet of music and speaking the same thing. Paul says there shouldn't be divisions among you and there should be unity so that you're perfectly joined in the same mind, in the same judgments. Listen, that's what unity is supposed to look like. All of us coming together, being of the same mind and the same judgments perfectly joined together. Most people do not understand thing. We live in a day and age where the where unity is viewed as dropping petty doctrines and differences and coming together and holding hands with every group or religion that names the name of Jesus. Is that not perception? And I understand. That does sound very spiritual. Yeah, you hear that and you're like, yeah, that, that does sound good. We probably should do that. Sounds like something Jesus would do. But it's important that we understand it's never about whether something sounds spiritual. It's about whether or not it's scriptural. Otherwise, the Bible isn't the source of truth, but how things sound and how things feel is. Because based on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we don't go... We, we don't let go of truth for the sake of unity. We do the opposite. We unify around the truth. Doctrine and truth are what we're unified by. Romans 16 and verse 17, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. Oh, who are these, who are these guys? contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Who is it here that's causing the division? It's the ones bringing in bad doctrine. <laughs> because we unify around the truth and we unify around sound doctrine. 
And, and, and though those that hold to truth and doctrine are, are typically the ones that get called out for not promoting unity and for causing division, as far as the Bible is concerned, it's the ones bringing in the bad doctrine that are the ones that are not promoting unity and causing division. We never drop the truth in the name of unity. We unify around the truth. In Psalm 133.1, David says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Romans 15, verses 5 through 6, describes the same idea like this. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be, what? Like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be like-minded with, with one mind and one mouth as we glorify God together as the body of Christ. We're, we're working off of the same sheet of music as we unify around the truth and as we're one mind and as we're one mouth. And so that's one of the reasons why Paul, Silas, and Timothy tell the Thessalonians to share the letter that we now know to be first, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Share it with all the other brethren or share it with the believers so they could be of one mind and one mouth and so that they could unify around the truth. And this is so important, y'all. And, and, and this is the, the, we're about to take a turn in this message that, that I want to make sure that you're listening very closely to and that you understand my heart on, but that you're also listening and tell me where I'm wrong, okay? It's, it's, this is so important that we understand these truths. We rally around and unify around these truths because many deceivers are in the world. When God is laying out for us the qualifications of an elder in Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, I, I want you to pay attention to what it says. It says, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able to by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. How is it that we go about convincing gainsayers or convincing those that speak against the truth? By sound doctrine, not letting go of doctrine. By sound doctrine. Verse 10, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision. You see, when these verses are talking about the gainsayers and the unruly and the vain talkers and deceivers, they're talking about the religious people, y'all. They're not talking about the atheists and the Satanists. They're talking about the religious people that are being described. Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So if there were many religious people that were unruly and that were vain talkers and were deceivers that were subverting or converting whole households back then, how many do you think we have now? Listen, I've said this before and you'll hear me say it a million more times. Satan is hiding in religion. And he's seeking to deceive He's using people and he's using religious systems that name the name of Jesus. And these religious systems look just enough like the truth to convince you they are and to send you straight to hell. And I think sometimes we hear that, but it's still like, oh, I just still can't believe that. You know, you know what I mean? Listen. The best counterfeits are always the things that look the most like the real thing. But at the end of the day, the counterfeit has no value at all. Remember, that's how Satan has always operated. This isn't some new idea he conjured up. He's always been doing this. The first recorded words of Satan in the Bible are found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. And they are, Yea, hath God said... Okay, so, so Satan's strategy is, is he's, he's going to try to get us to question what God said. And don't forget to take note of the subtlety that is mentioned here. The, the, the serpent was more subtle than every beast of the field. It's not obvious right on its face. 
So he, so he tries to get us to question God's word. And then do you know what he does next? He says something that's partially true. That's what's mind-boggling, right? Eve tells Satan, he said, she tells him, he's like, yeah, we're not, we're not supposed to eat uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or we'll surely die. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, here's what the serpent says. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And what Satan says here is partially true. They didn't die physically, did they? And after they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, and they knew good and evil. Do you see how he operates? That's some scary stuff right there. That sounded pretty true. Listen, you've got to be careful out there because Satan is still operating the same way today, and he works in the worlds of taking what God said and saying just enough truth to send you to hell. You remember the results of this innocent little partial truth that Satan told? It only plunged the, it plunged the entire human race into sin and put us on the fast track for hell. That's all. Just enough truth to get you there. Satan is counterfeiting the truth. And do you remember why it was that Satan fell in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 14? Remember what caused all this when he was Lucifer back then? He, he wanted to be what? Like the most high. And so in wanting to be like the most high, he imitates what the most high does. You see that? It looks like the real thing, but it's a counterfeit. When you want to be like someone, you, you imitate them. And, and you remember in the, in the previous verse of 1 Thessalonians, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, that we were just in, we, we talked about those other, other kisses in the Bible that aren't a holy kiss, but they were, they were, they were kisses of deceit. We talked about that deceitful kiss from the, from the strange woman in Proverbs. And when we looked at that, we looked at that from a very practical standpoint. But do you realize that from a, a doctrinal or a, from a prophetic standpoint that the strange woman that gives kisses of deceit and, and lures you into bed with her is a false religious system that is currently operating right now? In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, Jesus is talking to the church in Thyatira here, and, and he mentions a strange woman there by the name of Jezebel. And, and just like the strange woman in the book of Proverbs, you can see in these verses that Jezebel seduces with her nice-sounding but deceitful words to get people to commit spiritual fornication and commit spiritual adultery with her. And this strange woman Jezebel is clearly picturing a false religious system. The actual person Jezebel had been dead since about 850 B.C. She was a picture here. So when you see that, you begin to understand what the strange woman all through the book of Proverbs is actually painting a picture of. It's a picture of a false religious system that leads you to hell by using good-sounding, seductive words and a deceitful kiss. And it's a specific religious system that I do believe is important for us to identify this morning. But instead of me telling you who it is, I want you guys to go on a quick journey with me, if you would, and I want everybody to put on their Hardy Boy hats and their Nancy Drew glasses, and I want you to tell me the religious system that the Bible is describing. I won't, I'll save my stuff for the end. I'll just let you listen and you begin to gather information and see where this leads us. We get a lot of details about this system from Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1, it describes this false religious system, which is the strange woman. It describes this false religious system as the great whore. And in Revelation 17, 4, 
I want you to take a look at, at how this great whore is described. Listen closely. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Okay, those are a lot of very specific details. I think we can, get, I think we can start getting some traction already here. Those are pretty specific. Would you agree? Those are some clues that we need to file away. Skip to verse 6 of Revelation 17. It says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great, admira- ad- great admiration. So, it's a, so gather this. So it's a religious system with a history of martyring believers. Okay? Skip to verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So again, just like the strange woman in the book of Proverbs, Revelation se- in Revelation 17, the strange woman is, de- that is described as that great whore, and though the woman is a religious system, the woman is also a city. Do you see that? The woman is also a city. It's a religious system that's connected with a city. Okay? She's a a great city. It's a city that would have to be around 2,000 years ago and be around also when when the Lord comes back and be around for everything in between for the fullness of this prophecy to make sense. Because she has a history of being drunken with the blood of the saints throughout church history. So she had to have been around back then, and she has to be around now, and she has to be around all the way in between. And she's a city that reigns over all the kingdoms of the earth this is a religion it's also a city and the kingdoms of this earth identify with her as their city and religion in the same chapter in revelation chapter 17 and verse 2 it says it shows us this with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So, this woman who is a city, who is a religion that exists all over the earth, that, that the whole world identifies with, has as her colors scarlet and purple, covered in gold, precious stones, and pearls. Okay, Her, her symbol is a golden cup, and is associated with drinking wine in her worship, and has a history of killing Christians that will not bow down to her teaching. If that's all you had to go off of. Just start making a list of all that qualify, and your list is getting pretty short pretty quick. Okay, now let's look at Revelation 17.1 again and, and, and see a little bit more detail about this, this city that we're talking about. This is important, Revelation 17.1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore, here's the detail, that sitteth upon many waters. All right, so, so this woman that is a religion and a city is by the sits by the sea. Geographically, and when we compare scripture with scripture, we will understand it's the Mediterranean Sea. But, but let's add another piece to our puzzle here in Revelation 17:9. Here's what it says. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Seven mountains. So the woman who's a false religion in a city sits on Seven mountains. Have you ever heard of the city of seven hills before? Have you ever heard of the, the most famous city of seven hills? You know of a city on the banks of a sea that's situated between seven hills? I think we have a picture of a map. You see, 
you see Rome there, right there on the seaside. Rome is the city of seven hills. Look up the city of seven hills, and the first result will be Rome. It's Rome. And do you know of a religion that has drinking wine as part of its worship, that uses a golden cup as its symbol, that is a worldwide religion that has as its colors scarlet and purple, and they're covered in gold and precious stones and pearls that has a history of murdering professing Christians that don't agree with their doctrine. Do you know any religion like that? The next, show me the next picture, if you would. Look at the gold and the pearls and the precious stones. I'll be doggone. The next picture, if you would. Scarlet. Purple, gold, precious stones. The next picture. This is their recently constructed audience hall. Does that look like anything to you? <laughs> does that? Does that? I know it's falling off. It is, it's a serpent. Unbelievable design. Really creepy. He sits. They sit and speak from the mouth of the serpent. Listen, y'all. He's not really even hiding it that much anymore, man. He's really not. Like he, the mask, he's starting to take it off because the time is close. We're at the end. And they're all in their building, buildings, where they sit and speak from the mouth of a serpent, for goodness sake. And I've only given you a piece of what I could prove with this truth. If time would allow, we can go further. We haven't even looked at what Jezebel's religion was, who is used as this picture. So there's a lot more that time won't allow me to share. And if you have never heard that and you have any sort of a Catholic background, I understand that can be unsettling. And I wouldn't offend you for anything. I really wouldn't. But I'm either really good at making stuff up or this truth has been hiding in plain sight for a long time. But please understand, I, I love Catholics. I don't love their system. It's important that we're aware of how Satan's working in religion and that those of us in this church are all working from the same sheet of music and we're unified around the truth because many deceivers have gone out into the world. And do you remember who else we saw earlier was, was known for a deceitful kiss? It was, we, we, earlier we looked at, at Judas. And, and, and check this out. In John chapter 17 and verse 12, Judas is called the son of perdition. Okay, now file that away. Because in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, you know who else is referred to as the son of perdition? The Antichrist. In John chapter 6 and verse 70, Judas is referred to as a devil. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 25, it says Judas went to his own place. His own place was hell. And for our purposes this morning and for time's sake, I, I can't do it justice, but Revelation 17.8 is one of the places that gives us some insight into this. But what's going to happen is, is the Antichrist in the tribulation period is going to have a deadly head wound and the spirit of Judas is going to be resurrected into the Antichrist. And he will sit on the throne of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And he will profess himself to be God. We call this the abomination of desolation. The Bible calls it that. And he will be the, he will be the leader of Satan's false religious system as he pretends to be God sitting down on the throne in the temple. And he will be the leader of Satan's false religious system. The, the strange woman and that great whore that we just saw was none other than the Roman Catholic Church. You see... The Antichrist is going to be a future pope. So the, the holy kiss or the kiss of charity 
between brothers and sisters in Christ is in stark contrast to the kisses of deceit from the strange woman in Judas. Listen, Satan is countering everything God does. God says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Satan says, I got a kiss of my own, but it's anything but holy. But you see, I, I took you through all that because it's important that we're all working from the same sheet of music and having the same understanding of the word of God. And we can come together in unity with one mind and one voice and rally around the truth because there are many false teachers in the world. And then, and then lastly, number four, we're to rely on the grace of God. Number four, we're to rely on the grace of God. Here we are, the last verse of First Thessalonians. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Grace is, grace is unmerited favor. It's God being with us even when we don't deserve it. And, and listen, if we're ever to scratch the surface of doing what we've seen throughout our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians and doing what we've been called to do, then we're going to need God's grace to do it. Because he has to strengthen us to do it. He has to empower us. It's only by his grace. We can't do it by our own strength and power. It's, it's only his. And, and the wonderful thing about that, though, is God is more than willing to rain down his grace upon us. And in fact, he already has. We as believers in Jesus Christ have already received an abundance of grace, haven't we? Romans 5, 17, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, talking about Adam passing on a sin nature to mankind, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. With all that we've been forgiven of through salvation in Jesus Christ, we have already received an abundance of of grace but but the, the great thing is his grace never runs out according to second peter 1 2 it's even grace that has the ability to be multiplied it says grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord we've already received an abundance of grace at salvation but we still have access to more so much more that we can live in multiplied grace. And according to this verse, the way we do that is through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Through continuing to grow more and more in the knowledge of the Lord, we have access to multiplied grace. We have access to multiplied, unmerited favor being poured upon us. And I get it, man. There are seasons of life where we don't feel like we're living in the midst of multiplied grace. Whether we, haven't, whether we haven't been accessing it through the knowledge of the Lord or whether there are circumstances that have caused us to feel like that, here's what we can bank on. though: As believers in Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, just like when Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh, something that was working against him, that even included Satan's involvement. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can rest in the promise of verse 9. This is a wonderful verse. And he said unto me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. No matter how low we feel in life, no matter how the circumstances of our life can bring us down, we can rest in the fact that God's grace will be sufficient. We may not always be living in the midst of what we believe to be multiplied grace, but no matter where we are or how we feel, his grace will be sufficient for us. In other words, his grace will be enough. God will always supply us with enough grace to get through whatever it is that we may be going through. 
It may feel like there's just enough, but there will be enough. So Paul brags about his infirmities because the more infirmities he has, he says, the more power he'll get from Christ to overcome those infirmities and complete the mission that God had for him. But listen, just like with everything with God, he's not going to force it on you. He promises to show up with the grace. It will be sufficient for us no matter what, but we've got to receive that grace and not reject it. Just last week, we saw from verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5 in the same chapter that the one that called us will be faithful to do it. In other words, God will be faithful to empower us to do what he's called us to do and give us grace to be able to accomplish what he's called us to and complete the mission that God has for each and every one of us. So as, as Paul and Silas and Timothy, as they're, as they're ending this incredible letter, these, these were the final four exhortations that they leave with us. First, pray for each other, especially pray for your ministers and your leaders. Next, greet each other with a heart of love, not deceit, but genuine love in your heart. Be able to go up to anybody with the right heart. That's your choice. They may have chosen to wrong you. Your choice is to be able to come to them with a, with a loving heart and then charity and be able to greet them sincerely. Next, they, they, they show us where to, where to unify together around the truth. Be of one mind, one mouth, speaking the same thing, holding fast and holding tight to the truth of God in a world filled with false teachers. And then finally, as we attempt to do the things we mentioned, and, and as we uh, attempt to apply all the things that we learn from this study, man, may we always remember it can only be done through God and his grace on our lives. But he wants to give us that grace, and we have access to that grace. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you for these truths that you lay out in your word. We thank you for how rich it is. We thank you for how if we just come to your word and we take you literally and we believe the words that we're saying, we compare what scripture with scripture, we compare spiritual things with spiritual things, God, you can really enlighten what is going on in our lives and in the world. And I pray, God, that you would help us to, to apply the truths we've learned. I pray, God, that we would all get rooted in sound doctrine. I pray that we all would be praying for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that our, that our hearts would be right towards each other. God, and I, I, I pray that your grace would supply our every need. We know it will be sufficient for us. I pray it would empower us to accomplish all the things that you've called us to, not only in this chapter, but in, in this book. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to those truths. I pray we'd be faithful to the truths that we learned this morning, get them in our hearts, get them in our lives, understand why we believe what we believe so that we won't be tossed around with every wind of doctrine around there getting lost in these last of the last days that we live in. In your name we pray, amen.